Welcome to Passimir's CAM Podcast, Conversations on Error Digestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guests, Laura Brooks and Walter Reeder, having a conversation on working with the pediatric population with tracheostomies. Hi, everyone, and thank you again for joining us for Conversations on Area Digestive Management, the CAM podcast. I want to welcome you back as I welcome back Lar Brooks, a speech-language pathologist at CHOA. And today, she brings with her Walter Reeder, a respiratory therapist and respiratory educator at CHOA, to help clarify and share more information on our discussion from our last podcast. We're going to be talking about transtracheal pressures, manometers, ventilators, the settings on ventilators, and all related to the pediatric population. Thanks for joining us again, and we'll go ahead and introduce Laura and Walter a little bit more. As I said, you met Laura last week, so I'm going to jump to Walter and let Walter share a little bit about how long he's been a respiratory therapist and what his role is at CHOA and anything else he'd like to share about who he is. Hi, Walter. Thanks for joining. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. My name is Walter Reeder. I'm a respiratory therapist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta on the Eggleston campus. I've been a respiratory therapist for about 30 years, and I've worked at CHOA for 21. Now, in the last um, six or seven years, my title is called Pulmonary Education Specialist, but that's not really what I do. When I walk down the hall, they say, there goes the trach guy. So um, I'm a tracheostomy educator. I teach family members foster parents, even home nurses, how to take care of children with tracheostomies, how to get them home safely, how to keep them home, keep them growing until we can get their trach out. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize your education was specific to tracheostomies. So that's- yes, that's all I do. Is I, I mainly focus on families, educating families to take care of babies with trachs. I say babies because everybody's a baby to me, but sometimes we have some teenagers. How to take them home and keep them home safely while we're doing what we need to do in the background to get those traits out. But in that same passion of education, I'll, I'll also leak over to staff and you know physicians, nurses, other therapists who just don't understand traits because tracheostomies are not all that common. And especially in a five kilo baby, they're not very you know very common. So I just help keep the machine moving. Well, thank you. I... That is such a needed role. We often say there's not enough for parents and caregivers, you know, especially when they're going to have children or a family member or a loved one, you know, going home with a tracheostomy. There's more and more education needed. So knowing you have that role and help to prepare them is, that's really nice. Laura, did you want to add anything to your story as to who you are before we get started? I know you were on with us in our last podcast. I do not need to add to my story, but I think it's important to introduce kind of how I partner with Walter, how the speech therapist and the respiratory therapist partner on days where Walter is not present. It is, it can be challenging if I'm doing a passing mirror valve trial with a respiratory therapist who has rarely to never done a passing mirror valve trial before, because Walter and I have worked so closely together with building our program, writing the guidelines, doing our research. Walter was a co-author on a big paper that we published a few years ago on candidacy of passing mirror valve use in medically complex pediatric patients. It's so nice to have, you know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of passing mirror valve trials and so has Walter. So when we go into a room together, we 
don't even have to talk. We read each other's minds. And, um, and it's so nice to have someone who just truly understands the indication for the trach, the indication for the passing mirror valve, why this patient is a good candidate. He always goes into the session with glass half full. You know, sometimes there's team members who are thinking of every reason why the baby's going to fail a passing mirror valve trial. And that is not how Walter and I go into it. We go into it with how can we make this baby pass? How can we make this baby tolerate a passing mirror valve? We do the trial. If they fly, then we're, we're, we're setting them on, on a course for how to keep going and how to progress. If it doesn't go well, they'll say their pressure's too high or they get stressed out. Then, you know, we're, we're implementing some kind of strategies, some kind of team communication to problem solve. So there's never, we kind of don't accept a failure and we use our information from the assessment to just keep on trying, keep on problem solving for the win for these patients. And families, because we all know the benefits of the valve. We talked about it at the first podcast, and that is such a win for these families. And so we kind of keep at it and kind of don't settle for failure. And obviously there are exceptions to that, but we try to make it, make it a success. Laura, just to add to that, it's um, usually a little small tweak that we have to make. Um, Sometimes if it's a small baby, we may need to reposition them. Maybe they're mad at the moment. We give them a few minutes to calm down. Maybe it's a child who's very dependent on their sedation medication, right? And so we'll coordinate with the bedside nurse. When's the best time to approach this kid? When do they, if we're just measuring pressures, we'll say, okay, when does this baby take a nap? You know, so it's not just run in and run out. It's strategizing with the whole team to reach that child at the most optimal time. Both of you are emphasizing that this is a team approach, and that's something that we like to share also. That's one reason, Walter, having you on is so great, because seeing any person with a tracheostomy and a speaking valve does take the whole team. And it starts, I think, with the respiratory therapist and the speech-language pathologist being at the bedside, you know, doing the assessment. But then you just mentioned, you know, the nursing and the rest of the medical team and determining the optimal time. And that's a key to the success that Laura said y'all strive for. So I'm glad y'all are both emphasizing that. I want to start out with a little bit of chat about the manometer, what a manometer is from like how you look at it, Walter, from a respiratory standpoint. In the previous podcast, we talked with Laura about its use with transtracheal pressure measurement during the assessment of using a speaking valve, looking at the manometer help with airway patency assessment. Can you share a little bit more about the manometer, how you as a respiratory therapist use it, what applications it has in your practice? Sure. Several years ago, when we started doing this, Laura, has it been about seven, eight years since we started measuring transtracheal pressure? Yeah, 2012 was when we kind of started our program development for Gotcha. For best, best practice. Now, so there's not a device that I know of that's designed specifically to measure transtracheal pressures. So when Laura came to me and tried to figure out how can we can how we can do this with the supplies that we have in the hospital, just like most respiratory therapists, I went into the supply room, looked at all the gadgets we have, and started putting something together. So we I, we started using a manometer that we just happened to have in the hospital, and it's what we use to measure pressures when we're using the AMBU bag. And so it's just a very rudimentary analog manometer. It tells us when pressures are going up, when they're going down in a range. And we can show, if we need to, we can show pictures of that later, what we use. And so it just lets us know if the kid's stacking breaths, if the pressure's going up or down and things like that. So it's just a, a simple analog manometer that used for ambu bags. 
after Laura and I got into this really heavy and we were kind of splitting atoms here, I really wanted to know what the pressures actually were. And so I started using a digital manometer, what we use to measure cuff pressures with. It's much more accurate. It's digital. It goes up and down. And so when we had a kid who really needed to know what the exact pressures were, we were using a manometer that's designed for ET tube or tracheostomy balloon pressure, so or cuff pressure. So those are the things we use. There's probably some other stuff on the market, but that's what I had available to me. You mentioned cuff pressure. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that just a little bit as far as manometer use and cuff pressure and cuff reinflation? That's a question we get a lot where most people think you use a syringe, take the air out, and if you put back the same amount of air you took out, then you're fine. Mm-hmm. You know, with that cuff. Inflation. So that's not really true. It all depends on the position of the patient. If you've measured a pre- on a kid that's growing rapidly, if you measure the pressure one month and they have the same size ET tube in and you measure it in two months, the pressure could be down because the kid has grown and the trach or the ET tube hasn't changed size. So we measure. Now, when I have this conversation with you guys, I can only specifically speak to what we do at CHOA. You know, there may be other, other institutions that are doing things differently, but we measure cuff pressures on trachs that have air in them on, okay? What that does, it just makes sure that there's not too much pressure exerted on the inside of the trachea because you can get a pressure sore, just like you could a bed sore inside the trachea if the pressure is too high. So we shoot for a minimal leak technique and um, we only can measure them with air. Most of our tracheostomies, we use a brand that uses water in their cuff and you cannot use the digital manometers that we have in our institution to measure cuff pressures with a cuff that has water in it. So air only is what we measure. Okay. Do you mind sharing a little then how you do manage the water-filled cuff? Yeah. So we use minimal leak technique. So we just put enough water in there until we achieve the leak that we want. We do not completely make the leak go away because that would, you know, that would put a lot of pressure on the inside of the trachea. So we shoot for minimal leak technique. And we love to use trachs that don't have cuffs because it's just easier for the families to deal with. It's, it's actually safer. You know, nobody can run in there and put a passenger valve on somebody and cause harm when there's not a cuff on it. One thing I wanted to add to what Walter said, we do in pediatrics aim for cuffless traits, which I think is definitely a difference between adults and pediatrics, a big difference. Our patients who are new, they you know just got their trach and just got their first trach change, tend to always have a cuff. So the goal is to make it to a cuffless trach. It's, we tend to not put cuffless in as a new trach. So they start off with a cuff. The cuff is inflated, they get their trach change, and maybe the cuff deflation um, happens for the first time during a PMV trial. But in the back of our minds, in the back of Palm's mind, is always can this child be a candidate for a cuffless? Because, like Walter said, there's just it's just so much safer, so much easier for the families. Um, there isn't that risk of unfamiliar with passing your valve and puts the passing your valve on without deflating the cuff. So it's definitely something that we work towards. Yeah, that's Laura, to piggyback on that is the moment we put a trach in a child, we start thinking about how we're going to get it out. Okay. And the very first step of getting that trach out is being able to deflate the cuff. Whenever we trach, you know, a baby or just even a toddler, they're very sick. They're extremely sick. They need a trach most likely for long-term mechanical ventilation. We do have some kids who get trachs for airway problems, but 
but mostly they're for to be ventilated. And so they're very, very sick. We finally pull the trigger and we're gonna trach them. And so Lars Wright, most kids get a cuff trach, but the moment we put it in, we start thinking about how we're gonna get it out or deflate the cuff or even cuffless. We all start clapping our hands when, we, when a kid can finally tolerate a cuffless trach. So do you use cuffless trachs with mechanical ventilation? Yes, all the time. And so that's one reason why, it, this may not be the right conversation for it, but mechanical ventilation, when you have a kid with a cuffless trach, you most often have to use pressure control ventilation because there's such a, a leak sometimes and the ventilator would just go crazy trying to provide a, a tight of volume that I wanted to. So somebody asked why we use a lot of pressure control ventilation. It's because we use lots of cuffless trachs. Do you mind just sharing for the audience the difference between pressure control and volume control ventilation? All right, that's a great question. And I explain this every day to people who aren't ventilating people all day long. Mechanical ventilator is pretty simple, but it does some complex things. And so I can tell a mechanical ventilator to give a patient a breath at 20 centimeters of water pressure, and it'll give the breath at 20 centimeters of water pressure every time, and the volume will vary, okay? Depending on the compliance of the lungs, if they need to be suctioned or whatever, but I gotta tell the machine to do something. So in pressure control ventilation, I tell it to give a pressure and cut off, give a pressure and cut off. And the tidal volumes vary. In volume controlled ventilation, now this is just an example, but I'll tell the machine to give 100 cc tidal volume. And it'll give 100 cc tidal volume every time. And the pressures vary. So something's got to be constant and something's got to vary. And it just depends on what mode you're in. Okay, thank you. I know that we hear a lot of questions, and especially in the adult population, they say, oh, you can't ventilate with a cuffless tracheostomy tube. Well, that's completely just, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You just said, of course, you're doing that in the kids. Yeah. And you said, I believe, um, if I understood correctly, you said pressure control was the better, was yes. the better control to use. Well, pressure couldn't make, let me reiterate that. So when a child or a patient has a cuffless trach, you most often have to use pressure control because if I tell the machine to give a hundred cc tidal volume, if there's a large leak it's gonna leak out of their mouth and the machine's gonna get confused and continue trying to give that 100 cc tidal volume until it recognizes it. And with a cuffless trach, you just won't achieve that. The alarms will go off. It's just gonna create havoc. But if you can put them in pressure control and maybe turn down some alarms to a safe limit, then you won't have those alarms going off and you'll have much more success. So Walter, in talking about the ventilator, let's talk, just a little bit for the audience about ventilators themselves. You've described the difference between pressure control, volume control. Can you share a little about the different settings like rate and PEEP and the tidal volume itself that you mentioned? And So mechanical ventilators, like I said, do they're quite simple, but they do some complicated things. And so when I set up a ventilator, I tell it to do a couple of things. I tell it to give a rate, and that's how many times a minute I want that machine to give a breath, okay? And so that's the rate. Depending on the age of the child, how sick they are, we set our rate, okay? And then we set the pressure control. That's how big I want the breath to be. Or we set the tidal volume. And they, they both are given a breath, but just different ways. So that's the rate. That's the pressure control. Then we have something called PEEP. And PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure. So what PEEP stands for, or what it does, is it just leaves a little bit of pressure in the lungs on the end of exhalation. And it usually helps with oxygenation. 
It also helps to maintain FRC, which is functional residual capacity, just helps ventilate the kid better. And when you're not intubated and you have normal anatomy, all of us have a normal amount of PEEP in our lungs anyway, just from our anatomy. But when you put an artificial airway in a baby, then we remove the mechanism for them to maintain their own PEEP. So we have to give them some. And so every kid on a ventilator is gonna start with five of PEEP. And then if they're sick, if we need to help them oxygenate, then we'll increase that PEEP. And that's really important. Um, when we talk about Passimir valve usage, because if their PEEP is really high, then we can't use a Passimir valve because it lets that anatomical PEEP leak out. So that's a little complicated, but um, that's what we do. Now there's one more thing I want to describe that we put on a, on a, on a ventilator. We set, it's called pressure support. And um, I just described a minute ago, we tell the machine to give a rate, okay? And then in between the mechanical ventilator press, the patient can breathe on their own. And so they, they use something called pressure support. And it's usually just five, 10 or 15. And it just helps them uh, start their breath and maintain their breath. Because you got to remember they're breathing through a little tiny tube, through a bunch of ventilator circuitry and through some other objects that we put in line. And so it just helps them get their breath started and maintain. So, so rate is something we set. Pressure control is something we set. PEEP is something we set and we set the pressure support. And then there's another thing that we focus on that's really mainly focused on people who are super into ventilation, and it's the eye time. And it's how fast we tell that machine to give a breath. And all of us have different eye times. If we're sitting around watching TV, our eye time's kind of slow. We're nice and easy breathing. But if, we work, if we're working out and we need a, you know, a bunch of flow, we'll take a real big, fast breath. So we can determine the eye time on ventilators also. So, and they all play in together. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's going to help get everybody kind of on the same page because the next thing I want to chat about with you and Laura is the actual assessment using a valve in line. You have been very successful at CHOA. You start early with these kids in the NICU and older, you know, using, trying to open up that upper airway, get airflow through the vocal folds and get a valve in line. Um, and you're doing so even with mechanical ventilation. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that as far as using the manometer to measure the airway patency, because that's one of the first things we want to assess is the air airway patent. So do you and Laura mind chatting a little bit more about how you make sure that the child you're about to work with has a patent airway and may be an appropriate candidate for using a valve? Sure. Like you said just now, we are very brave at starting passing mirror valve early, okay? We like to start it early. I love returning as much normal anatomy as I can back to the patients. Passing mirror valve is, is marketed as a speaking valve, but we use it many, many ways. In a child or an infant or anybody, actually, it helps with... Uh, going to the bathroom. It helps with lifting their spirits up or their parents' spirits up when they can finally hear their baby, you know, coo and cry and things. It's just a wonderful tool to use. And so very soon after post-op, when the kid gets a trach, when the medical team um, says, when they think it's okay, like Laura and I never run in there and just throw Passimir valves on, on people. We always run it by everybody. And so they're usually you know, a week post-op when we try it for the first time. So we want to make sure it's safe. 
And so we do transtracheal pressures. And so if we put the passive valve on and their pressures go up and down, up and down, just perfectly, then we know we got a pretty patent airway. But sometimes um, they'll go, they'll shoot straight up and it could be on a kid who had vocal cord paralysis. We knew that, but um, I'm right there to correct anything that goes wrong. And we know this kid's not ready yet. We can document some pressures two, three weeks later when we, we think the kid's grown or the swelling has gone down. Then we can try that again and compare the pressures that we had last time. It's also transtracheal pressures are very useful. I use them many, many ways. I use them in the hospital. And then once a week, I go to clinic and see all these kids that we trach in the outpatient setting. And I will do transtracheal pressures on a kid who has vocal cord paralysis or tracheal stenosis just to see if it's getting better you know, due to their growth or maybe an operation that they've had. So that's some ways that I can think of right the second that we use transtracheal pressures. Laura, did I miss anything? Or Transtracheal pressure is, I've said this before, I think I said it in the last podcast that I cannot imagine ever doing a passing valve without it because it gives us that information, that objective information that we need um, to know that the airway is patent and that the patient can adequately breathe with the passive valve on and exhale adequately with the passive valve on. But the trickiest part for speech language pathologists is to understand what those numbers mean and understand what the pressures mean. And sometimes I'll hear speech pathologists say, okay, so the high number is good and the low number is bad. And I'm like, no, 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 you cannot learn it that way. You have to partner with the respiratory therapist to figure out what those pressures mean. And so if the patient's on a ventilator, the high number is likely the inhale. If the patient's off the ventilator, the high number is going to be the exhale. So you can't learn it like high, low. And if the patient's on a ventilator or off the ventilator, the respiratory therapist is the perfect person to tell you that number is correlating with the PIP, which means that that number, 23 centimeters of water, is correlated with the inhale. That's not the magic number. The magic number for transtracheal pressure is the end expiratory pressure, the number at the end of the exhale. So as the patient's exhaling, what's that number at the very end of their exhale? That number is the magic number. That number is the transtracheal pressure. So um, when Walter and I do this, we don't do it every time, but often I'll say, Walter, tell me when the ventilator is giving a breath. If there's like a lot of noise in the room and it's hard for me to hear now, I'm so used to it. I can just listen for the ventilator giving a breath. And I know that that's the pip and the inhale, but Walter would say now, now, and I'll put a little recording on the manometer. And in the beginning, when we were first kind of learning how to do this and I would go back and I would watch it and I would try to make sense of what those numbers mean, because every like Walter said about what the role of a manometer is just to measure positive pressure. So all of those pressures that the ventilator is giving is going to be measured on the manometer or reflected on the manometer. And then all of those pressures that the baby or the child is making by coughing, pushing, um, throat clearing, breath holding, anything like that is going to be reflected in the manometer. So really understanding what those numbers mean is totally the key. And the best way that, that we practice and the best way that I can describe it is to put the manometer in line without the passing mirror valve and it will measure pip, peep, pip, peep, pip, peep. Let's say 22, 23, nine, 23, nine, 23, nine. And when you put that passing mirror valve in line, if the airway is patent, 
it should read almost exactly that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That um, that's a really nice explanation, and the numbers get people confused a lot. So I'm glad you pointed out, Laura, that you can't go by a high number is bad and a low number is good because it's going to vary. And it's going to vary if they're on the ventilator or not on the ventilator. It makes a big difference if they're on the ventilator or off the ventilator when you're using transtracheal pressure measurements. But what your discussion made me think of, do y'all mind sharing a little bit about the criteria you use to decide a child's ready to use or to attempt to use a valve in line? What do you look for? So Laura, yeah. you share with us the written down criteria, and then we'll share what mean you really do in the hospital, like how um, <laughs> the, the confidence yeah. we have to try it. You know, um, so you do your thing first, and I'll share with you why I think we're successful, you and I, because how we yeah. try and we never quit trying. Okay, perfect. So um, our criteria is um, there's no age criteria, there's no weight criteria, there's no diagnosis criteria. So the patient has a trach after their first trach change, I'm like, ding, 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 ding. Is this patient a candidate? And I did want to mention when we talked in the beginning about practice and RTs and SLPs, the respiratory therapist has so much going on that a passing nerve valve is not always the first thing that a respiratory therapist is thinking about. So if you're in an institution where the you're relying on the respiratory therapist to be the one to be like, hey, this is a passing nerve valve candidate. They are worried about a million other different life-saving things when it comes to babies with traits and mechanical ventilation. So they're not thinking about a passing nerve valve. So I would advocate for facilities to partner and have the speech pathologist kind of make sure that they're tracking these patients, um, that they know, okay, there's you know, 20 patients in our hospital with trachs and who's trialing passing your out and who isn't and who's ready. So who's the candidate, the patient who has a fresh trach or an old trach um, with a fresh trach, which just means that um, they just got their trach changed, their trach placed for the first time um, after their first trach change. It's not a fresh trach anymore. And it's go time for a lot of different things for early mobility, for passing nerve valve. So what I do is I look in the chart and I make sure that there isn't any big contraindication, like, you know, reconstruction, tracheal reconstruction with a stint, you know, something that um, the ENT would say, oh gosh, we don't want any air going through this patient's upper airway right now. So that's, that's a hard no, or grade four subglottic stenosis is a hard no, because there's just no upper airway room for the patient to exhale. So I look for something like that, like, okay, check, check, check. There's no obvious, um, contraindication. And then I look at the ventilator settings. And then if the PEEP is 10 or less, and the FiO2 is 50% or less, and the PIP positive inspiratory pressure is 40 centimeters of water or less Then I'm like, okay, check, check, check. Those vent settings are good. And then, um, you know, I obviously look at the size of the trach tube and, um, why they got a trach. Of course, that's one of the most important things is that they get it for airway issue. Do they get it for ventilator need? If they got it for, if they got a tracheostomy because of an airway, upper airway obstruction, we know there's going to be obstruction. That's why we say, hey, we, we can measure um, the transtracheal pressure to know if, yes, they have obstruction, but it does not compromise their exhale. 
because you can have upper airway obstruction and still tolerate the passing mirror valve and still safely wear the passing mirror valve. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to check with Walter. Hey, Walter, um, this kiddo just got a straight change. I'm thinking about passing mirror valve. What do you think? And he'll say, you know, I know that baby. And I think that's a great idea. Let's talk to the team. So we will talk to the surgeon who placed the trach. So that's our ENT 99% of the time, the pulmonologist who is managing the ventilator settings and the hospitalist. So if the patient's in the NICU, we'll ask the neonatologist. If the patient's in the PICU, we'll ask the PICU attending. Um, so we loop in generally those three people and we say, is everyone good with the passing your valve trial? Speech and RT are doing it together and we're measuring transtracheal pressure. And they'll say, yes, you know, 99% of the time they say yes. And sometimes they'll say, oh, you know, you'll get a resident or something that will say, oh, well, there's a the patient has a is on the ventilator. They can't do a passenger valve. And we're like, oh, well, did you know that it was actually invented for ventilator use? No, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. Um, or, uh, you know, you can't do it. They have a, a cuff. And we say, oh, well, that's our very first step is we always, after suctioning, we always deflate the cuff. We would never place the valve without deflating the cuff. Um, so sometimes there's a lot of education that goes around that. But that's kind of kind of what I think of as candidacy. Walter, can you add to that? I love how you said when we first started this conversation that my glass is always half full, and it is. Most of the passing mirror valves that we put on kids are in the ICU, and I'm very comfortable in that setting. And so whenever you and I try a passing mirror valve, I always look around the room, see what I'm going to use if there's something goes wrong. I always like to stand on the side of the bed where the ventilator is so I can just fix things before they go wrong. To me, everybody's a candidate until they're proved not to be. You said everything correct about the numbers that we use, but most importantly is the confidence level of people going in and the knowledge that they have of what they're doing and the patient that they're working on. Laura is super passionate about these kids and she will always come and get me. She said, hey, will you come in this room and do a passing mirror valve with me? Because quite often your success is going to be into the thought that you put into it before you go in the room. So I always like to get the kid, approach them at the best time of the day, maybe after they've had some sedation, if it's a, if it's a real sick kid, maybe after a breathing treatment just when they're going to be the most optimal they can be. And then I will always, before we start, I will suction them out. I will get them in a good position and I'll get the whole room comfortable with what we're going to do. I like to look at their vital signs. And so I'm always looking like Laura's always looking at the kid and I'm looking at the kid, vital signs, the ventilator, just kind of playing zone and seeing what's going on in the room. And I'm prepared if anything goes wrong to fix it immediately so that it doesn't spook everybody in the room. Say, oh, we can't do this again. So if you're going to have a successful transtracheal pressure system in your hospital, it's got to be multidisciplinary. You have to have a respiratory therapist that can handle silence in the ventilator, putting it back together when you take it apart, all the little parts that have to go in there. And then the speech language pathologist really has to be understanding and very curious of what those numbers mean because they're, like Laura said a minute ago, they're totally different when you're being mechanically ventilated and when you're not. Laura also impressed me, like after we would do a, a passing mirror valve play, she'd say, what does that number mean? Teach me what rate means. What, how much PP is he on? She was just wanting to learn as much as she could ago about mechanical ventilation. It was just, uh, and I learned a lot about um, what she's thinking. So I said, Laura, what were you thinking when we made that decision? And, and so we both have learned a lot from this and we have gotten to where we can go in the room and we're just like an old couple now. We don't have to talk to each other. We just know what we're going to do. So, you know, you just got to be comfortable in the room. There are some number criteria, but basically it's just, hey, man, try this. And if it didn't work, reposition the kid, suction them out, calm them down, get one of their favorite toys. We didn't even mention, mention that, Laura. Like um, Laura's got Usher singing the ABCs that we do to toddlers to get their mind off of things. And so we just use any method we can to be successful and we don't take no for an answer. 
Yep, you do with an infant, the, you know, we'll swaddle them, we'll give them a pacifier, we'll have mom hold them. And then for an older kid, yeah, we always joke that we we owe Usher money for every time we use his Sesame Street ABC video because every kid just loves it. And it's just the best. We use some kind of distraction for our patients to try to get resting breaths because that's the key. And that's so funny to me that it's not used in adults because gosh, wouldn't that be a dream, Walter, to be able to walk into a room and be like, hey, sir, here's the deal. I'm putting the passing mirror valve on and all you have to do is just breathe. Don't, Mm -hmm. don't talk, don't push. And the patient says, okay, cool. I can do that. I mean, that never happens in peds because, you know, they're little and they, they don't, we, we can't do that with an infant. So that's why we have to use our techniques to try to make sure and ensure that we are measuring transtracheal pressure with resting breaths. And something that I've picked up on when I'm training people is sometimes people are like, oh, that was, I got a better read today, or that looks a little closer to what I want. It's either, it's either a perfect read with resting breaths Mm -hmm. or, or it's not, you know what I mean? Like if, if we go in a room and we put the valve on and the pressure is exactly the same as the pressures or pretty close to the same as the pressures with and without the ventilator. We're like, okay, that's a patent airway. That's a perfect read. Or alternatively, if it's not a patent airway, the patient is breath stacking. So you get the inhale, but they can't exhale. So then the pressures go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. That's if, if it's with resting breaths, then that is a true read. That is a, a true read and it's a failure and we need to figure out why they failed. And then everything else is nothing. It's not good, it's not bad, it's nothing. The patient's pushing, the patient's coughing, the patient's vocalizing, the patient's, and the numbers are going up to 60. Of course it's going up to 60 because they're pushing and they're vocalizing whatever. So it's not good, it's not bad, it's just, it's not a read because it's not with resting breaths. So you just keep at it every single day. Let's say Tuesday we go in and the patient's awake and they're happy and they're pushing and they're cooing and yeah, that's great. But it's not telling me if it's a patent airway yet. Um, I just know that, hey, they can push and they can vocalize and that's good. That's a good sign that there's a leak, but it's not telling me the transtracheal pressure number. So I'm not gonna leave it on and wait for something bad to happen. I'm not gonna leave it on and see if they desat. You know, Walter was saying we set up the room looking at the vitals, standing by the ventilator to make sure nothing bad happens and knock on wood, 99.999% of the time, we don't have DSATs. We don't have Brady's. We don't have these problems because we're any stress sign, any stress sign, we're taking it off. Any breath holding, we're taking that valve off. And if we cannot get that true resting breath, transtracheal pressure, we're taking it off because they're just not ready for it. They're not ready because they're too awake. They're too they're too active there. We can't get them to do resting breaths. So we just do it another day. We try to get on Wednesday. We try to get on Thursday. Sometimes it helps with a baby, um, get them right when they're dozing off to sleep and they're nice and calm and they're swaddled and they have their pacifier and we're like kind of tiptoeing in. Okay, let's put it on real quick and make and see if, if they don't know anything. And then the patient doesn't move a muscle and they're just breathing. And then we're like, oh my gosh, that's a beautiful pressure. And once you get that number, those numbers with resting breaths and you get that check, 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 that airway is patent, you have what you need. And until you get that true transtracheal pressure measurement, good or bad, and if it's not real, then you just keep at it until you get a real one. Laura, to add to that, um, I think one reason we're so successful 
is the approach that we take. You know, we'll try it on, on just about anybody that we think is a candidate. And with my ICU mentality and background, I'm always ready for if something goes wrong. And so if the kid doesn't tolerate it, I know how to react quickly. So there's not a bad experience and, you know, the team will let us continue, you know, to try this. So we know what we're doing. We've, um, we plan appropriately for anything that could go wrong. We act quickly. It doesn't happen much, but we're ready if it does. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our half hour with our podcast. I think we could go on. The two of you could probably just talk to each other back and forth and we could do a couple of more episodes. But I want to thank both of you so much for joining and coming on to the CAM podcast to talk about working with the pediatric population and using transtracheal pressure measurements. And Walter, your additional explanation about ventilators and the settings I think that that's all going to be very helpful for those that either are working in the pediatric population or who may want to move into that population. So thank you both very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.